Welcome to The Confessional. I'm Mike Moran. Tell us your deepest, your creepiest, your funniest. Confess to us. No one's listening. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Confessional Podcast. My name is Mike Moran, and I am joined today by trusty co-host, the very talented and funny Sue Werner. How are you, Sue? Never better. Sue, you've got a lot going on lately. You just did a Riot Fest with your, your band War on Women, correct? Oh, yeah. that was I love Riot Fest. It's yeah, the best amazing. fest. Is it really? Except for Fest. It's the best fest. Right, right. Yeah. You can't mess with Fest when can't it comes to Fest. fest. <laughs> it's simply the best. <laughs> um, yeah, but that was a great experience. Thanks for taking me along for that. We even, we even ran into uh, my uh, fellow uh, confessor. Former confessional guest, uh, Mike Vanderbilt, who was from the Halloweenies podcast, mm-hmm. who was uh, working there. And Joanna Angel. Joanna Angel, yes, yes. Yeah, that was great. What else do you have coming up for War on Women? Oh, let's see. So we're going to play Fest, and then we're going to do a couple shows after that. And then we're going to do a, maybe like a 10-day tour with Cancer Bats at the end of November, early December. And we're actually going to play Baltimore on that tour. Nice. No nice. way. Where are you yeah. playing for that? East Coast stuff. No, no, no. Where are you oh, playing? Oh, uh, Metro Gallery, I, oh, I believe. Okay, okay, that's a cool venue. That has maybe that hasn't been announced yet. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. Oh, that's all right. Okay. <laughs> um, now, Sue, we have. You're not going to believe the guest we have today. I, I bet I won't. Yeah, you, well, you should know. Oh, I, I'm just trying to go along with you. Yes, and <laughs> I'm anyway. just. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> Uh, no, you and I, we, we found out maybe a, a month and a half ago that there is a book out that uh, takes a, a, it's a book about a book, or about several books really, mm-hmm. that takes a look back at, at two books that you and I were fairly obsessed with as youths. Mm-hmm. Go Ask Alice and Jay's Journal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just about that whole phenomenon. This has been something I've been like kind of Wikipedia reading about over the years, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, just this whole idea that the, you know, is the book real? Is it not real? What was made up? What wasn't? Are parts of it real? Mm-hmm. Um, that's something I've been interested in in a while. So we were both psyched when this book came out. We were immediately obsessed oh, yeah. with it. Definitely. And uh, so today, uh, while our topic will be uh, books that creeped us out, and our guest will be the author of said book, Unmask Alice, uh, Rick Emerson. Welcome, Rick. Thank you so much for coming, Rick. Howdy. Hey. Hello. Hi. So, Rick, tell us about uh, this book and, and where people can get it. Uh, before we do anything else, I should say at the outset, and this is probably not the first time you've heard this, every time I'm doing like a Zoom or I'm on the phone or something, my dogs seem to think that I'm ordering lunch. <laughs> so if, if at some point like you hear barking, it's just because like they're convinced pizza is on the way. So just <laughs> right. just, just FYI. Um, thanks for having me on. I, I appreciate it. Um, so I'm... It, you know, after writing this book, one of the things I've learned is that, I mean, I kind of knew this uh, ahead of time, but, uh, you know, that I am far from the only person who grew up being obsessed with <laughs> Go Ask Alice and then living through the satanic panic. Mm-hmm. And so Unmask Alice is uh, sort of several stories wrapped into into one colossal kind of mind-blowing saga. So it's the story of uh, the book Go Ask Alice, and it's the story of the satanic panic, and it's the story of the the imposter who lurks behind behind both of those things. And it's just bigger and crazier than you can possibly imagine. Nice. 
Um, and also, uh, it gets into Jay's journal, which mm-hmm. uh, I, I feel like that got a little bit more intertwined with the Satanic Panic. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, no, you're not wrong about that. Right. Uh, the uh, there was there's actually one quote that I that uh, from this book that I thought was really good. If it's okay, I want to read it real quick. Sure. <clears throat> Prior to Jay's journal, teen occult suicide was all but unheard of. A decade later, it was everywhere. A ready blueprint blueprint for grieving parents, red-faced preachers, or anyone else who craved small, tidy answers. Never mind the drug use or the sexual confusion or the figurative hell of adolescence. Never mind the ocean of guns, for that matter, or their availability to almost anyone. No, it was demonic possession or a role-playing game or a witchy girlfriend. Anything but the ugly, messy truth. I thought that was really good, and I thought that we could, I don't know, I feel like it's quite relatable even today. Um, there's a, I think yeah. the uh, Satan being the cause of uh, our issues is sort of becoming mainstream again in upsetting ways. Right, right. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the, Mick Jagger said this thing one time. He said, there's no future, there's no present, there's only recycled past. Mm. And... That is definitely the case. Um, well, it's the you know, age so, like, of the reboots in the, yeah. <laughs> the uh, revival series. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's not just new Spider-Man films; it's new ways yeah. to blame Satan for all of our social. Problems. <laughs> We're getting a Satanic um, Panic Legacy sequel. It's yeah. wonderful. But Rick, before yeah, we get I, too far into it, just just tell our uh, listeners where they can find you and find our and find your book and everything. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, so I am I am at. Rick Emerson, kind of everywhere that that, uh, with the exception of TikTok, because I'm ancient. So, um, <laughs> but on Instagram, Twitter, and then RickEmerson.com, and uh, and the book is available wherever wherever one w- wishes to uh, to obtain books uh, in ebook form and hard copy uh, and also audiobook. The audiobook, nice. by the way, is fantastic. It so, really is, and really you, is. you could tell it makes a lot of sense that you're an audiobook nerd because you could tell you put a lot into the audio version of it. Yeah, a uh, very, very fine audiobook narrator, a woman named Gabra Zachman, uh, did the performance of yes, it, and it really is, it's its incredible, it's its quite something. Um, on the on the satanic panic issue, it's, it is one of those things that, so we're, this is what, September 2022, so last, uh, so March of 2021, so 18 months ago, there was a survey that came out from this group called the uh, the Public Religious Research Institute, which is a, a pretty reputable organization. And they put up this survey that said, and they broke it out by party affiliation. To be fair, it was much higher with Republicans, but it actually said that 15% of all Americans, all Americans, believe that the United States government, media, and financial systems are controlled by Satan-worshipping pedophiles. <laughs> and Well, how does know, the pedophilia always get, like, shoehorned in there? <laughs> like, what does that have to do with anything? Well, and also, I mean, not to make too much light of this, but it's it's odd that Satan is only attracted to certain crimes. Like, there are no satanic <laughs> embezzlers, right? <laughs> like, there's no satanic... There are no satanic, satanic jaywalking. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like we're booking this guy in a charge of satanic shoplifting. Like that never happens. Right. It's like you never hear about like uh, you never hear about Enron, you know, or any right. sort of like gigantic Ponzi scheme or stock swindle or pharmaceutical uh, scam. And then at the end of it, you know, it turns out, well, it was Lucifer again. It's always <laughs> the same handful of crime. And which as as I think I note at one point during the book, it's that it's one of those things that is it is sort of grimly amusing because on the surface it just seems like such a lunatic idea, and it stops being funny when people start going to prison 
Mm. And when you realize that there's X percent of the people who actually believe this and that it didn't end in the 1980s or even the 1990s and it didn't end last year and it's Mm -hmm. still happening now, it's even having lived through it, it's, you know, it's hard to believe sometimes. Absolutely. Nothing makes me feel older than knowing that I've lived through a literal witch hunt. (laughs) All right. So, Rick, our topic is books that disturbed you. Obviously, uh, Alice was a big one. Are there any other uh, books that that uh, kind of chilled you and, and and disturbed you as a as a teenager or as a youth? Uh, yes, the, the actual the disturbing started early. Um, <laughs> this is one of those things for, you can you can credit and or blame uh, my sister for this uh, because my sister, who is far and away the smartest person I know, she she did this fantastic. I actually the the book is is dedicated to to my mom and to my sister and the reason that my sister is you know in addition to just being taught me to read and when i was pretty young and so by the time i by the time i entered kindergarten i was already reading and you know and this is well-traveled territory to say that children's books and children's stories are sometimes a lot darker than adults remember Absolutely. or a lot darker than, you know, that we, people always point to like Grimm's fairy tales and right. they say like, I can't believe how violent and disturbing they are. And it's true, but I think it's, it's easy to say that without actually reflecting on exactly how grim they are sometimes, no pun intended. Um, so I, <laughs> one of the, uh, one of the authors that I read a lot when I was a kid was Roald Dahl mm. and, you know, it was just, you know, just a tremendously inventive and influential writer, you know, not just he wrote a lot of, you know, stories for grownups that are equally disturbing, but a lot of his children's books are disturbing in the overall and then also in the specific, mm. by, by which I mean, uh, you know, sometimes the stories themselves are a little unsettling, but then you get things like this. So I'm holding up, this is my childhood copy of uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Nice. And t- uh, chapter 10 is just called the family begins to starve. And then <laughs> it's, and you know, and it's one of those things that is, I mean, we all kind of know the story ends happily and all of that. But before the story ends happily, leaving aside the whole issue of Augustus Gloop getting sucked into a pipe and I think Violet Beauregard getting rolled off to a juicing room, welled <laughs> up into a giant, you know, blueberry tinted, you know, sphere. There's this long section where you know, Charlie, who lives with his mother and father and two sets of grandparents, and all of them are starving. And there's this really unnerving description of how, like, you can start to see, like, the ribs poking out oh from his God. grandparents, you know, chests. And it's because his dad gets laid off and it's winter. And Charlie is having, a, like, a bowl of, cab- not even really soup, a bowl of cabbage water for mm. dinner and half a potato. And that's all he's eating that day. And, you know, and it's one of those things that is horrifying now. And yet as a kid, you're like, this story is awesome. And it's, <laughs> right, you know, right. And, and it takes a while for that to set in. There's also James and the Giant Peach, which actually comes out of the gate. Like, I mean, it goes hard, as the kids say, <laughs> like from the beginning. On the first page of James and the Giant Peach by Roald Dahl, it starts by showing you a picture of James Trotter. And it says, this is James Henry. Tr-. It's weird that I can do this from memory. It <laughs> says, just as James Henry Trotter when he was four years old. And literally... On, I believe the first page of James and the Giant Peach, his parents are eaten by a runaway rhinoceros from the zoo. And then he's, I mean, if they're either eaten or trampled or possibly both by a runaway rhinoceros. And then he's sent off to live with two ants who make him do yard work and beat him senseless <laughs> and then lock him in a small box at the end of the day. And you, you read that as an adult and you, it's, 
I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Roald Dahl, but you do sort of understand why on occasion adults are like, hang on, what are you reading now? It's- <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's It was so weird how it's like that that stuff was acceptable in elementary school. And then you get to your teenage years and all of a sudden it's like you can't listen to any music with any violence in it or play any video <laughs> games. You know what I mean? Right. It's so strange. It's- well, and that adults tend to, um, you know, adults... I think there's something about I I don't have kids, but I will say that I think there's something about having kids that flips like a switch in your head somehow. Mm -hmm. I think that there are things about your own childhood and certainly about your own adolescence that as soon as you have kids of your own, you no longer have access to those memories Mm -hmm. because I think it would just be too (laughs) unnerving. Hmm. Right. I think if like if you had a if, if you have a teenager, you have a 15 or 16 year old kid at home. And you are able to accurately remember your own adolescence right, and right. what you were like at 15. Like you'd never let them, like you'd just lock them in the cellar. Like you'd never let them leave the house. <sighs> and and I think it's the same for kids. And so I think we, so on the one hand, we tend to block a lot of that stuff out. And we also tend to forget kind of the strange and resilient attraction that kids have to really horrifying stories and to things that that's how kids learn to grapple with you know, loss and death and all of those things, not to be too, you know, not to get too heavy about it, but it's, Absolutely. Um, and that continues well into adolescence. So it's, you know, so you graduate from Roald Dahl to Stephen King pretty, pretty smoothly. Mm-hmm, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember like what renting faces of death as a teen. Like I, I would never do that now. <laughs> e- even watching Jerry Springer as a teen, like I could never do that. I could never watch people like being so awful to each other. Yeah. But for some reason when I was 17, I, I couldn't get enough of it. Well, and, you know, and I, I am become one of those people. So there's this, uh, there's a website called, I think it's called does the dog die.com, yeah. <laughs> yeah. which, which is an invaluable resource for me because I am, I am one of those people that it's like, like, I've never seen John Wick, even though I know that it's apparently like a modern day classic at some point, really? I'll, you know, I'm going to have to watch an, a carefully edited version of it. Cause I know that there's some unpleasantness with the family dog. And it's like, I just can't take that. Right. Exactly. That's oh, wow. same. Same. Huh. Yeah, like I'm out as soon as, you know, it's like that's, I remember watching, um, I know we've gotten off the subject of books here, but I <laughs> were watching I Am Legend with Will Smith and, you know, there's, he has a trusty canine companion and it, you know, and as soon as they introduce the dog, you're like, all right, I, this better work out <laughs> properly. And, wow. and it does not work out well, except, you know, for anybody but vampires and, yeah. you know, and so right, I, right. at that point I just had to pull the ripcord, but I remember. So you were so rooting for this, Cujo in that, that film. Well, that I was, it's so I was just about to say this, that, uh, so I, I mean, I hesitate to say something like this out loud because I'm not, because I'm all for, I'm all for reading, you know, I know I'm all for kids reading obviously. And, and I, you know, I have a real problem with people who want to, like on the one hand, I understand the idea of not just letting your kids read anything at all. Right. On the other hand, you know, I think kids, as we said, are more resilient and they're more, you know, they're more, they're able to grapple with those things in a, you know, in a way that we don't always give them credit for. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a delicate needle to thread. I will say that when I was, I mean, I couldn't have been, I couldn't have been more than 12. I mean, maybe. And I went to, I spent a lot of time at the library because I was, you know, just just that that kid and i remember checking out cujo when i was 11 or 12 and i i mean 
it was so it was it was exceedingly unnerving. And mm. aside from the whole like, hey, we're trapped in a car on the hottest day of the year and there's a rabid dog outside, which is that itself is, mm. you know, is is sort of unsettling. But there's this whole weird subplot about how the wife, the husband thinks the wife is having an affair, which she may or may not be. And mm. the family is sort of splintering and coming apart and the kid is witnessing all of that. <sighs> and it was I remember my dad just sort of picked it up and flipped through it. and He was like, huh. <laughs> well, you know, it's up to you. He, I forget exactly what he said, but it was something like, if you can't sleep, don't come crying to me. <laughs> Which, you know, that what, book really, really stayed with well, me. Thankful, well, thankfully, it ended happily, though. I saw the movie. I know what happens. One of the things that I'm, I'm disturbed joking. me about Cujo <laughs> was the – in the. I feel, I feel I haven't read that book since I was about the same age you were when you read it, Rick, but – in the beginning, you there's like these little vignettes of like getting into the dog's head, you know, yeah. and like the dog's like inner monologue, and he's like, "Man, I don't feel too good," you know, and, yeah. and like, and he's like, coming. So "It's like it's like look who's talking," but with <laughs> <laughs> he's like coming and down it's... with rabies, and then he's like, "Oh man, I feel like I want to bite stuff," and or, I don't know. It was probably written much better than that. Um, <laughs> By the end, is he just like yes. a, a cursing like? Uh, Degenerate, uh, you know, yeah. just, uh, a uh, incel type. I, d- I don't recall how I how the dog's inner Freaking monologue humans. evolved throughout the book. I just I just remember feeling so bad for the dog. Really, in the, in, in the beginning of that book, anyway. Wow, this is like the genius, and and you know, and Stephen King really is. I mean, he really is. Uh, you know, one of one of the most gifted storytellers we've ever had. Totally People, agree. you know, sometimes quibble about the actual quality of his of his writing or his, you know, his attraction to certain themes over and over again. But it just in terms of, as I sometimes say, even a bad Stephen King book mm-hmm. is great to read because yeah, he yeah. just has such a fantastic natural style, which he's honed over the years. And it's, you know, he really is a great storyteller. And it's, but he also is, you know, he is sort of the master of the thing that is, so simple and you know and interesting that somehow nobody has ever done mm. you know the setup or the approach so for example you know the idea of what if you were trapped in your car on the hottest day of the year and by the way there's a giant sort of slavering kill beast outside in the you know in the parking lot what would happen then and you're like i never really thought about that but thanks to you i will for the rest of my life thanks a lot <laughs> Stephen. King. and he does the thing of showing it from the dog there's big sections as you said from the dog's point of view where and it's and the and that should be ridiculous, right? Like it mm-hmm. should that should totally be like this is silly. I can't possibly take this seriously as a book. And and it actually ends up making the book more affecting and more horrifying, mm-hmm. as you said, because because the dog goes from being um, having sort of rudimentary but understandable, straightforward thoughts to just being like bite, kill, bite, kill, uh-huh. and you're just like uh-huh. oh, this is you know. And he does he actually has reused that approach a couple of times in he does that in under the dome where there's he has a whole section for a dog's point of view. So it's yeah, it's a um it's a pretty unsettling approach. And he is maybe unparalleled in the the really disturbing setup that you know that that has somehow gone unexplored. Gerald's game does yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember hearing similar. the yeah, I remember hearing like the plot of that as a kid and being like, oh my God, that's so simple but so horrifying. Yeah, and it's and it's one of those things where it's like literally in the first like four pages where it's like 
husband ties the wife up, wife up as part of some bondage game that she's not really into. And then he dies, you know, <laughs> and then, you know, good luck. And then it's like 270 pages of like what happens now. Oh and mm-hmm. even starting that, you can't really guess what's going to happen. Remember now. the uh, the story, the survivor type where basically yeah. the what if was basically like, what if you're mm. trapped on a pile of rocks in the ocean and have to eat yourself? Yeah. And also you're a surgeon who has a bunch of painkillers. Yeah. You, yeah. At least he had heroin. Or, <laughs> was it heroin? I think I can't Wouldn't remember. it make more sense if he had painkillers? That he was, uh, I thought was he that... was like smuggling heroin or something like that. He was a doctor. I think he has morphine. I think it's morphine. morphine. Or something like that. Did you read that one, Jimmy? But he, no, but I, I mean, yeah, uh, it was morphine, in... is, morphine works. You know, <laughs> it's a painkiller. <laughs> Well, and that's, of course, you know, drugs are their own sort of recurring motif in Stephen <laughs> King's books and for a lot of his life, right. clearly. Um, right, right. But yeah, he so he's, you know, really, I mean, almost without equal in terms of the really simple yet really compelling setup that he then uh, pays off. I, um, I will. So so it started with James the Giant Peach and then I went through, you know, this this Stephen King phase. And I arrived at, but as as an adult, uh, the two books that stand out the most, I did give this a lot of thought. And the two books that stand out the most to me in terms of, you know, just pure, I mean, the, I made a couple of rules. One was that they had to be quality books mm-hmm. uh, because otherwise you're just sort of subjecting yourself to being traumatized for no reason. Sure. <laughs> um, and uh, the first is uh, The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Oh God! Oh, you know, and, I didn't, I didn't uh, note that one, but somebody did uh, write that one in. Apparently, yeah, there's, there's th- things in the basement or something like that. So it's a Pulitzer Prize winner, and it really is. I mean, it's it's masterfully done. It's an, it is one of so it. I have two books actually that I arrived at, and this is one of them. And I I had the same thought with both of these books. It was the idea of reading it and thinking this is a brilliant book that I. I will never ever read again. <laughs> right. Um, you know, that I'm going to finish it, but I'm never reading it again because it's like, because it, it's going to leave a mark, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, again, the premise of the road is, is pretty simple. It's, you know, it's almost impossible to spoil because it's just, there's some, some bad thing has happened and the entire, the entire natural world has sort of, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the environment has gone haywire. And so it's a post-apocalyptic wasteland, et cetera. And it's just a guy and his son walking from point A to point B through, you know, essentially through this ruined landscape as, as the entire, um, you know, the entire ecological chain has fallen apart. And, you know, I've, I've read a lot of post-apocalyptic fiction. I mean, I, you know, it sort of comes with the, it's like a cultural, uh, it, you know, it's it's part of the cultural imperative that I I'm knee deep in zombies about half the time. But the road was just, it was just utterly bleak and ju- I mean, it's a brilliant book. But at the same time, you're like I, you could feel it whittling away pieces of your soul. Mm. Um, I actually have a friend of mine who one of the re- one of the recurring moments in the road is that because again everything's sort of falling apart and there's not a lot of food and not a lot of supplies, and so the main character is always hoarding matches and cigarettes red lighters because you know there's no other way to build a fire i have a friend of mine who read the road and to this day and so that was maybe 15 years ago to this day anywhere she goes in her car in her house at work she's got like a drawer full of matches and cigarette lighters just (laughs) and it's totally because of that book she's just like i'm never going to be caught without portable fire ever again thanks cormac mccarthy (laughs) wow that's incredible crap now i'm gonna Uh, have to start carrying that stuff around too 
Just start smoking it's six. Just yeah, a six. lifetime supply. That's why, yeah, exactly. lighters and matches. <laughs> yeah, it's a really and it and again it's it's and it's weird to talk about this and to still say like it's a fantastic book people should read, but that really is true, and that's and that's when you realize you know it's sort of easy to frighten or unnerve people just through using a cheap gimmick. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's easy just to be gory or easy just to say like, oh, here's a dog. Now we're going to, you know, now we're going to kick it out of a helicopter or something. It's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> you know, because that gives you some distance. I mean, somebody's probably writing that as we speak, but I, it's, uh, you know, that, you know, on when, when you, when it's done badly, it doesn't really affect you that much because it, you know, you just because you, you're always aware that like you're reading a book or you're watching a movie. Right. When someone does it well, when a Stephen King or a Cormac McCarthy does it, it's you lose that boundary, mm-hmm. you know, that division between you and the work of fiction, and you're just kind of getting set. You're in the world, and it just becomes more satisfying, but also more horrifying. And so the second book uh, of the two is, um, so the road is fiction. The second book is nonfiction, which you know, makes it a little bit, uh, a little bit darker in some ways. It's called in the heart of the sea by Nathaniel Philbrick. And uh, it's uh, in the heart of the sea, the tragedy of the whale ship Essex. Hmm. And it's another book. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. I'm into this genre. Is this one of those lost in the Arctic stories, memoirs? It's one of those stories. I mean, there is, I think this is a genre of the, uh, you know, some small number of people, uh, you know, who are then, you know, stuck on, uh, you know, on a boat and a, you know, a space station, you know, on, mm-hmm. you know, on top of a mountain or whatever. And they've got to like survive because everything's gone wrong. It's, it's one of those books that you wonder how nobody had ever told this before, because Moby Dick by Herman Melville was based on a true story on a story of a boat that was, that was, you know, essentially, essentially attacked by a whale and, and, and sunk. But no one had ever told the true story of that story. And so this author, Nathaniel Philbrick, went to Nantucket, spent a lot of time researching it. And he, so In the Heart of the Sea is the nonfiction account of the actual event that inspired Moby Dick. Nice. And this is not a spoiler because this is how the book (laughs) opens. The book opens with this. And so I'm not giving anything away. The prologue of the book is... Some, some people and some guys are like on a whaling ship and they see this sort of lifeboat bobbing out in the middle of, you know, like a few hundred yards away. And they're like, oh, it looks lifeboat, you know, it doesn't look like there's anybody on board. We should pull up alongside it and see if there's anybody there who needs help or maybe there's supplies we can use. So this whaling ship pulls up alongside this lifeboat. Guy looks down over into the lifeboat. In the lifeboat, here's what he sees. And again, this is how the book starts. He looks down into the lifeboat and in the lifeboat, there are two men, both alive. One man is at one end of the lifeboat. The other guy is at the other end of the lifeboat. So they're as far away from each other as they can possibly be. And in the center of the lifeboat between them is a big pile of bones. Oh, man. Busted. That's how the book- <laughs> you, throw the, <laughs> you throw the bones over the, into the ocean when yeah. you're well, with them, don't you? you? Now, look. You never know when you're going to need one of those as a club for the other guy in the lifeboat. Oh, you, you keep so, a good, you keep a nice thigh bone by your side, but you want to get rid of all the yeah. other evidence, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. So it starts that way, and then you know, so that's what you. I mean, so it's like then for the rest of the book, oh, you know what's coming. Like you know, right, that, Like right. you're going to end up back at that opening scene, Absolutely. and it's like, well, how did we get there? It's it is. I mean, 
And, and, and the thing is, it makes it sound like I'm not recommending the book. It's a, it's a fantastic book. I think Ron Howard made it into a movie a few years ago that I didn't see. I, I don't know if that's good or not, but it's an amazing book. But I remember at the time I was, I was reading it and every night when I would go to read it, it was like just pulling like a black shroud over my head. <laughs> and like, how, old, like, how old were you when you read that one? This is actually maybe just five or six years oh, ago. Okay. It was, um, it's a great book that I did not realize was going to be so grim, but it was actually so well written and it's such right, a fantastic right. well-researched story that I was just like, I got, you know, there's no turning back, but again, it was like, this is the one time I'm going to read this. So I better like absorb it all because right, I'm right. never opening this book again. Absolutely. Now, Sue, that's a, like you said, that's a genre you're into. Have you heard of that one? I, you know, uh, I wasn't familiar with the actual title, but when you started describing that scene, I knew exactly what you meant. I actually haven't read it, but um, it's definitely it's on my list. <laughs> I am so I am so glad I am not I was not alive during the time when you had to go on like a wooden ship for six months, or you know, uh, and it, it, you know I've read like you know two years before the mast, uh, endurance, the terror. Uh, the Terror is one of like the scariest books I've ever read. Actually, nineteenth oh, yeah. century people uh, in the Arctic just didn't yeah. mix very well, <laughs> at least from. So I have the. It's funny. I, the Terror is sitting on my coffee table right now uh, <laughs> because it's. Uh, I haven't started reading it yet, but that is on I mean, my. You're, you're uh, not talking about your dog, right? <laughs> <laughs> the terror, no. the terror. You're thinking of terrier. The yes. terrier, the sorry. terrier. Yes. <laughs> uh, sorry, he still thinks terrible. he's yeah, ordering he, lunch. Uh, it's <laughs> and the weird thing is, like, I'm I'm actually not like a big fan of deep water. Like deep water, and I yeah, am not too. really, me too. you know. And so yeah, Jaws did that somehow, for me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like I'm compelled to read these books that I know are going to like right. unnerve me. <laughs> well, yeah, that's I mean way. that's that was the whole that's my whole history of disturbing books was like or, or just anything like when I was a kid or a teenager like if it disturbed me I was into it you know what I mean like, sharks terrified me so I'd watch like every shark movie read everything I could about sharks uh, Lord of the Flies would probably be probably be my choice for uh, disturbing books. Uh, from childhood, at least, uh, I, I saw the 1990 uh, film with Balzazar Getty as Ralph, mm -hmm. and uh, it messed me up really bad. And it opened up like a new, like psychological chamber in my head of you know, kind of humans can be very cruel to each other. And uh, so I immediately read it several times, right? <laughs> and I was like, maybe in fourth grade. And, uh, it, you know, I, I kind of zone out during some of the more boring parts, but uh, it, the book was, was it, it, you know, that's the type of book, like you, like you were saying, Rick, where it's like, it, it pulls you into, like, it makes you feel the terror, like, not just, it doesn't just describe it to you, like, you're pulled into, mm -hmm. you know, you're almost like regressing in time back to this primitive state as the book goes on. And, uh, and in the book, uh, unlike in the 1990 film, uh, the pig head talks to Simon, which I found to be very disturbing. Yeah, it's also unlike the uh, also unlike the film. The book does not mention the TV show Alf, which, which the <laughs> 1990 does. Oh man, great, <laughs> great movie, reference. There's a that's there's the a type scene. of reference I'm talking about. Yes, I do remember that. It's eight o'clock. Yeah. Isn't Ralph? Isn't Alf on now? <laughs> exactly. And it's. I remember even at the time. I remember watching it, going, "Oh, why did they have to date it?" Oh right. God, <laughs> that's horrible. And isn't it yeah. supposed to be in like a post-apocalyptic future anyway? Like, yeah. I know. Like I don't war? think so. I. I, I think. I mean, I can't say for sure with the original. I think with the original, it may have. It's been. It's been several years since I've since I've read the book but i 
I think it might have been during the war, so they might have been sort of, you know, it might have been like a like a refugee ship or something. But I don't think so because because I think they were all the kids were all British because that's I think at the end at the end of the novel I think you know the person who I mean, spoiler the you know the the adult who finally like comes to the island and it's like oh here are those missing kids um they've descended into savagery and it's <laughs> but he says something at the end about like. Like, I can't believe this. You're British or whatever. <laughs> yeah, just, there were know. references. Yeah, I remember Piggy saying something like that, too. Like, well, British, we're not supposed to be acting like that. And actually, I think it really had some really offensive words in the in mm-hmm. the original Limey. version. Uh, no, far more offensive than that. Uh, red more coat. like, we're, we're British. <laughs> Why are we acting like a bunch of blank? Yeah. Mm. And I, I think it was they actually less, updated uh, several times until they finally got to Savages. Okay, good, good, good. Well, um, you got to work several, your way there. You don't just open up with Savages, <laughs> Mick. You know, work your way somewhere. Right, yeah. right. Um, but yeah, that's... Uh, oh, speaking of deep uh, cut references, I appreciated your uh, reference to Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives in Unmask Alice in the form of <laughs> the chapter title Teenage Frankenstein. <laughs> uh, yes uh, throw that in so, there. <laughs> uh, so i see i appreciate that you see chat that friday the 13th 6 is far and away my favorite of the entire franchise it's a good uh, one it is it's hands down it's it's the most i mean none of those none of those movies are really like funny you know in the strictest sense but that one does have some some self-aware it it almost pre it almost prefigures the movie scream absolutely and apparently he was uh, six right right he was at the director tom mclaughlin was asked to direct scream initially and he refused big mistake all right let's jump into a uh, confession real quick this one is from uh lori palmenter terry palmenter new york city uh, she read The House of Leaves, creepiest book I've ever read by far. From a writer's POV, I really can't even know how this author pulled this book off. It's so creative slash wild slash unnerving. The writing is top notch. Uh, basically, a, fil- a family moves into a new house and then discovers it's actually bigger on the inside than the dimensions outside. Then a door appears with a descending staircase, and instead of getting authorities involved, they decide to explore it themselves. But it's also much more than that. House of Leaves. Anyone read House uh, of Leaves? It's much more than that. That's a yeah. That's a pretty uh, it, honestly. I have that book and I have not been able to get through it because it's so much. Uh, it's uh, it kind of like I would say near like sort of transcends the boundaries of like well, what first, like a novel. First of could all, be. it like, sounds like a rip off of Full House because if you remember, <laughs> if you remember yeah. the intro, that skinny little uh, row home, and then mm-hmm. you go inside and it's this massive house. Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly what I was saying. <laughs> so I hadn't, I hadn't really made this connection before, but so I have not read House of Leaves, but it's it sort of seems. I mean, this some this will sound snarkier than I mean it to, so my apologies, but uh, it. I feel like it's sort of like uh, the infinite jest of the mm-hmm. horror novel world in that I know a lot of people who own it. Everybody or has another it. shelf. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's like you get about a third of the way in maybe and you're just like, uh, maybe I'll read something else for a while. And then it just like never. Now, I haven't even made it that far. Yeah. So I, I'm no one to I'm no one to point fingers, but it's done. It again, this sounds like I'm. I mean, I guess I am. I guess I am being snarky, which so I apologize because you know what do I know? But it's I'm just saying for me, <clears throat> it works better almost as a piece of visual art mm-hmm. than a book because if anybody's ever, I would encourage to just like go and like find a copy of that book if nothing else and just leaf through it. It's 
it makes me wonder, I got to say, I mean, uh, not like I'm an expert on the field of literature, but I will say that getting any book published is difficult. Sure. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, it, like, you know, it's become easier now because, you know, there are alternate uh, avenues for that. And self-publishing has really come a long way and has become, you know, much more mainstream. But getting, you know, going and having somebody like a, a publishing house pay you and say, like, we're going to print this and we're going to put it into stores is difficult, even with the most basic, <laughs> right. straightforward, simple book. That book is just, it's, it's unbelievable. The layout and the way it's designed and the way that it looks and the the different, uh, I mean, Sue can speak more to that than I can, but it's, it's I incredible. I would watch a making of feature about of this. Of a book? Of, of a book that I haven't even like The making finished. of a book. I'm serious. <laughs> <laughs> Next time you come that over. That sounds like an episode of like a segment on Sesame Street Start or something. Like cutting where they visit down the, the, the printing. Yeah. <laughs> it began with you know, a tree. But like the pitch process, the, <laughs> the editing war. process, I can't even imagine how it must have worked with this book. Right. I. It almost looks like... It, when you look at, at the book, when you look at House of Leaves, it, it looks like a cross, to me anyway, it looks like a cross between one of those really ornate, gorgeous, um, uh, like, Bibles from, you know, like the 14th century where mm -hmm. it's got all, like, the, <clears throat> the really um, lavish printing and calligraphy and typeface and, you know, inset photos and watercolors. But that crossed with like a punk zine from 1985 mm -hmm. um mm. and you know and then all of it done by someone who is intent on scaring the living hell out of you um it's <laughs> yeah. a really you know it again I'm, I'm with Sue on this i would absolutely watch something about the making wow. of that book it's wow. it's pretty it's pretty stunning Ooh. i also wonder if he lifted that a little bit from the shining because the shining the whole thing about the overlook is that the hotel on the inside doesn't look anything on the like a ho the hotel on the outside you know the floor plans don't right, match right. at all in any way so i wonder if somebody was like i should make a whole book about that mm. interesting interesting so do you have any more thoughts on that one sue you said you um again i i haven't finished it but like i definitely am probably gonna flip through it when i get home oh, I, i'm intrigued <laughs> just by hearing you guys talk about it i'm intrigued is this something that would would uh work well as an audiobook or? no no okay it no it's it's almost impossible to describe that book unless you and again this is coming from somebody i haven't even read it but if you look at it you do wonder it's just impressive that it exists at all much less that it has uh, yeah. you know, following, which I guess is maybe more about me oh. and the fact that I don't have the attention span <laughs> to get like through. A, it's well, like, a, have, it's a no really impressive artifact, you know? And, uh, I kind of feel like that can, that it, it, the fact, it, again, the fact that it exists, like, you know, outside of even the story, you know, is, uh, just, it's, it's really fascinating. I, I'll show it to you. You'll see. Okay. We'll, we'll do another episode about that. I'm hoping it's really meta and it's just like a tiny slim book and then you open it and it's like a thousand <laughs> pages long wow. somehow, you know? Really meta. <laughs> Also, there's something there's something a little unnerving about the way Sue said, I'll show it to you. You'll see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I honestly have no idea what you guys are, are describing at all. But, uh, I, uh, I keep it in the basement. You'll have to follow me down here. <laughs> all right. This one is from uh, Jamie Hicks, Tucson, Arizona. Now, Jamie wrote in uh, kind of a section of, of this book to give us an idea. Oh, and by the way, book covers would be a good uh, topic for a, a show mm -hmm. sometime. Mm -hmm. We should do that sometime. Um, Some all right. guy at a bar singing a book. Sorry, terrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, book covers. Yeah, like doing a cover of 
<laughs> yeah, like audiobook covers. Yeah. yeah. We're doing an album of audiobook covers. <laughs> Do Hasselies! <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, this is from Jamie Hicks, Tucson, Arizona. Jamie chose the Hogfather. All right, said Susan. I'm not stupid. You're saying humans need fantasy fantasies to make life bearable. Really? As if it was some kind of pink pill? No, humans need fantasy to be human, to be the place where the falling angel meets the rising ape. Tooth fairies, hog fathers, yes, is practice. You have to start out learning to believe the little lies so we can just believe the big ones. Yes, justice, mercy, duty, that sort of thing. They're not the same at all. You think so? Then take the universe and grind it down to the finest powder and sieve it through the finest sieve and then show me one atom of justice, one molecule of mercy, and yet death waved a hand, and yet you act as if there is some ideal order in the world, as if there is some some right rightness in the universe by which it can be judged. Yes, but people have got to believe that, or what's the point? My point exactly. It was when I was 13, kind of when I realized what I believed, but there in front of me in black and white ink. Mm. And it was awesome, but it was still kind of frightening and unsettling in a way that I can explain at that age. Terry Pratchett book, right? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, uh, I, yeah, I think I've read that. I've read like so many. So Didn't many Terry Pratchett write the uh, the Sword of Shannara or whatever? The Sword of Pantera. What I don't know. <laughs> the Sword of Shannara. What was that series? Uh, I I believe I think it was. So here's a weird thing. I I'm pretty sure I can't swear to this. I'm like eighty nine percent sure I interviewed Terry Pratchett at some point, but. Uh, but I think it was one of those things where I was like, somebody set up the interview and I, I had to bluff my way through the entire thing because I'd never read a single Terry Pratchett book. And it was sort of just like, so, uh, so, so we didn't, we didn't need to read on mask Alice. He's, okay. yeah. <laughs> and it was, so I just felt like, well, it's, I mean, cause I worked in, I worked in radio for a long time and it was like, sometimes you would just get assigned an interview, you right, know, where they'd right. be like, Hey, you're interviewing so-and-so tomorrow. Like once I had to interview the drummer from the band. Yes. Wow. And, <laughs> and here's the thing. You should know this. I loathe the band. Yes. Like, with <laughs> um, and, you know, he was a nice guy, but it was that thing of like a having to pretend that I was really into right, the band right. and also that I knew anything oh, about them God. at all, apart from the fact that I tried to avoid them. And so <laughs> I think, that- yeah, Wikipedia is a godsend for, for interviewers <laughs> these days. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't. I didn't have that. I just had to be, you know, like oh, I love that song you did. <laughs> awesome, great. You know, the tune. one with like the polyrhythms. What was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was it, that song that had like the surreal album cover? Yeah, that was my favorite. <laughs> you know, that, that one song that was like thirteen minutes long. <laughs> if only Sue had been there to like totally pick up, to like take uh, the baton uh, and be, you know, you could have. Yeah, see, because right. Just now, I got to say, I have no idea if you're bluffing or if you really know what you're talking about. You're I way better at this I also than I can't stand yes, but I'm right. sort of familiar with what, them, what is? I, I am pretty hard on prog rock in general because it just kind of, it always, even if I like it, it always borders on being oh, yeah. Like yeah. obnoxious or something. Which, what songs did Yes sing? Um, well, they're most... The closest thing they had to a hit was well, they had the song "Owner of a Lonely Heart," which is not really. Oh, that's but, terrible. But don't, but terrible. don't, no, no. But that's like way better than like most yeah. yes songs. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say the opposite. I no. thought you were gonna be like, don't judge them by no. that. No, song. no, no, the rest no, no, no. Judge is... them by that. At least it has a hook. Like, wow. Yeah, like, well, yeah. It, it, yeah, exactly. That's. I mean, here's how you know. 
I mean, again, I apologize. This is now the second time after snarking about House of Leaves and this, I'm just burning my cred left and right. The thing about, and I've gotten totally off the subject, as you may have noticed, but I will say that here's how you know, like every quote, true yes fan will, it hates that song, Honor of a Lonely Heart, which sure. is how you know it's like the one that's like, that has a hook and is like, a, has a melody and a chorus and <laughs> yeah. actually, you know, goes somewhere. Uh, and it, here's the other thing that Owner of a Lonely Heart does. It ends. Right. It actually ends <laughs> as opposed to most prog rock songs, which just sort of, Part seven. Yeah, they go into know. another movement. Or yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry, yes fans. Um, you're, I'm sure you're very nice, fine people. Yeah. Um. <laughs> well, Sue, why don't you tell us about a, a book that disturbed you? Okay, I have a couple. This one's a little weird, but so when I when I was a kid. Uh, my mom is an English teacher, so there were just like a million books lying around, which is why I was it, able to. It recently appeared in a documentary, correct? Yeah, about Moby Dick. Yeah. yeah oh wow, well, that's weird. Um, but whoa. But my mom, my mom, uh, that's. I was famous for reading books at a very inappropriate age. That's which is how I read Go Ask Alice. Uh, you know, probably I was like six, maybe. Really six? I, I, maybe, oh, a little, maybe a little older. So how did you interpret the uh, another day another blowjob line? <laughs> I just, I didn't, I, I would just, I just kind of skipped over it. I probably was, I probably was a little older than that, right, but right. like I, but I was quite young and I didn't, I did get, you know, but it also made me fascinated by drugs. Um, <laughs> but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about all about the atom. Okay. When I was very young, six, seven, let's say, I asked my dad what an atom was right. and, and he gave me this book, this like hardcover, like educational book that was probably written in like 1955. You know, and it talks about atoms and like what they are. Da, da, da. The first half of the book, I was like, wow. The second half of the book is all about like radioactivity and atom bombs and H bombs and how they work and how they're going to like destroy everything. Mm. And uh, it was kind of like, I guess, written during that period of time when people were really excited about like nuclear stuff, but also, oh. you know, had a, they were, they were afraid of it because, right, you right. know, like, but, but like they weren't. I don't think they knew that it would actually like destroy the entire world. It was kind of like Cold War, yeah. like it was almost a style or yeah, something at that yeah, time. Yeah, totally. Like, and it was like, and it was like almost like a textbook. It had like like the, like those like you know stylized kind of like late fifties drawing illustrations, you know, uh -huh. of like advertisements for cigarettes. Kind of, yeah. yeah, you know, and uh, and I just I. I can still like quote passages of that book from memory because I read that read it over and over again about like what radioactivity like does to your body, <laughs> you know, and and like you know like when you like when you say like you you're you're obsessed you're you're terrified of sharks so right, right. you have to read everything about sharks, you know I am terrified of radioactivity but I'm also completely obsessed with right with it. right just like Rick read every, everything about yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so I mean, that book like kept me up at night, like yeah. like being afraid. Of oh, I was <laughs> I, I was th that almost went concurrent with the satanic panic. Like my two biggest fears in the late '80s when I was in elementary school were satanic cults and nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and again, so it's uh, when did you read that book, Sue? Uh, uh, I mean, you, let's, uh, I mean, I, it, it was probably like I don't know, 1985, like or so. Yeah, so that was because I, to your point about it, it having this sort of big splashy '50s graphics and whatever. Mm -hmm. Because there was the early stage, which was like the friendly atom, right? Well, yeah, you right. know, and it's yeah, the atom and, and you, you know, <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. Talking to yeah, your kids totally. about the atom, 
<laughs> radiation and how it helps your family. And, you know, or, the, or, you know, when they would talk about, you know, the arsenal of democracy. Right. And well, I mean, this, later, book, this book absolutely had that tone. It's just that I kind of uh, didn't buy it because I like, right. you know, saw what they would talk, were talking about on the news. And I'm like, oh, that's what that those missiles on TV are. You know, so especially because they were in the 80s, they were doing this. I mean, under Reagan, especially they were doing this strange. I mean, it wasn't even a dog whistle so much as it was. They were just lying in the way that they described things in that. I remember Reagan describing he kept they kept using this phrase during the uh, Reagan administration of a nuclear exchange. Mm -hmm. And when I was a kid, (laughs) I didn't didn't quite know. I was like. Well, it was almost like it was like a it was like a Christmas party. Like they were trading <laughs> gifts, and and what, then what later Poland I was like, "Wait a minute, <laughs> nuclear exchange? That sounds a lot like being burned alive in an apocalyptic tornado yeah. of fire that you know that then redu- makes the Earth uninhabitable for seven billion years, and that's actually what it was. And I, it's weird. I never I uh, so. Mike, you just said something about how it ran. It was like concurrent, the satanic panic and nuclear war, which I'd not really thought about that. But that those two things really did dovetail because, I mean, I guess if my publisher was here, they, you know, my publisher would be yelling at me and telling me to find a way to tie this into my own book more. But <laughs> I, I will say that the satanic panic was a thing that I lived through, but also, as you said, the the fear of nuclear incineration. And there was this, I mean, there's this thing that people have kind of forgotten about that came out. It was in, I think, like 84, 83, where I forget who the official was, but there was someone from the Reagan administration who literally said this, literally gave advice to the American public. The advice was this. It was, I'm not making this up. This is true. The advice was that you could survive a nuclear war if you went into your backyard beforehand, dug a hole that was, wait for it, six feet deep, (laughs) got in the hole. I am not making this up. You could survive nuclear war if you went and dug a six foot hole, got in, put a like a door, like you would take like the bathroom door off the hinges, put it over the top, and then shovel two feet of dirt on top of the door. What now, the fuck? I, I don't know what's happening to the guy who's outside having to shovel the Carve dirt. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. How, how quickly oh, do you think that? you can uh, dig a hole? That's here. your cousin. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Put on your best suit. Yeah, it's like, uh, well. <laughs> It's, you know, it's like, you know, put two quarters over each of your eyeballs. SPF 30. Yeah. So those things oh happened at about, wow. about the same time. And right, I think right. And a then lot wait. of the, sorry, go ahead. I would know. I was just going to say, so I think a lot of that satanic panic stuff, I mean, I, I am not a sociologist, but I, I think a lot of that was, you know, you can't really even grasp. Like that's just such a the nuclear war yeah. thing is just so big and terrifying and and incomprehensible that in a strange way the idea that you know the idea that your uh, you know that your kid is in the basement with a Ouija board summoning the devil actually <laughs> seems smaller and more right. handleable you yeah. know you can get your arms around that easier. <laughs> right, right. Well, surprisingly, Rick, uh, the the true story of the Exorcist, which uh, only recently came out, the details of which uh, happened not far from us here in Maryland. And uh, it's it's funny because there's there's like no one around to talk about it because apparently there's a big white flight in the neighborhood. And uh, so it's a completely different population now. But I actually met a girl whose grandmother lived in the neighborhood at the same time as uh, the, the boy who was known as Roland Doe. Wasn't his real name. Uh, it turned out he actually worked for NASA and died a couple of years ago. 
But uh, she said it, that it was more of a neighborhood-wide panic kind of thing going on. Uh-huh. That inspired that whole uh-huh. thing. Like several people were claiming that their kids were possessed. or huh. Yeah, things like that. Ouija boards wow. and all that. Uh, there was, so in an early... Uh, in an early draft of Unmask Alice, I mean, there's a lot that got cut out just because you know there's only only so many pages and, and all of that. Sure. So, um, uh, and you know, and I wanted to kind of stick to the main story, but in an early draft of Unmask Alice, one of the things that that got cut out was I actually had a whole chapter about that story. Oh, cool. and, so I'm uh, preaching to the choir. The uh, making of featurette should oh, have please, it. Please, <laughs> Rick, Rick, please tell me that's your next book. Uh, I, it's well, I, I I'll just say that it's there's a lot of things. I mean. You know, most of this probably, you know, will never get read because, you know, it's either incomplete or, or I realize that it's, you know, redundant. Or oh, whatever. But, but yeah, there was <laughs> there was a whole stretch in uh, Mask Alice where I talk about, um, you know, uh, pop that it handled children and, uh, you know, the occult. Right, right. And and specifically and how the exorcist, which, you know, I, ironically, you know, for a, for a guy who just like wrote a whole book about the satanic panic. I'll say that movies about the occult don't typically unnerve me just because it's because that's I can't suspend my disbelief long enough to really be afraid. Like, in mm-hmm. other words, I'm way more afraid of Jaws than I am <laughs> of The Exorcist because I don't really believe in demonic possession. I believe in giant sharks. Right. <laughs> and um, but I, what I am terrified by, it's not so much the idea of demonic possession that's terrifying. It's the idea of a whole neighborhood right, going, right. he's demonically possessed. Yeah. We should get a priest. Now, that d- is it's scary in, as hell. Yeah, in your research, Rick, did you did you find that same thing that that it was kind of a, a panic going around that neighborhood at the time? Yeah, and it's and of course it's that thing that people you know human memory is just so mm. fallible and flawed, and anybody who says differently is just is just deluding themselves. I mean, and I'm including myself in that. I mean, you know, it's easy to get people to remember things that didn't happen, mm-hmm. uh, to mm-hmm. conflate mm-hmm. things sure, that sure. don't connect to each other, and. You know, and as humans, I mean, this is one of the things that I do um, talk about a lot, uh, or, or that it's a theme anyway in Elmas Alice is, you know, humans, and again, I'm no exception to this, we are hardwired, it seems, to, for a couple of things. You know, we, we have a natural attraction to easy answers and simple solutions, mm-hmm. even if those answers and solutions on the surface seem impossible or crazy. Right. Um, if, it's, if it's an easy way to answer the question or make the problem go away. We are really attracted to that. And, you know, we're also hardwired for scapegoating and for saying Mm. it was him over Mm. there. He did it. Always the other. And, you know, that's how you get the Salem witch panic. That's how you get the exorcist. That's how you get, that's how you get 28% of Americans thinking (laughs) that the, you know, that the government is run by satanic, you know, by satanic pedophiles, because it's an easy way to explain, you know, well, this is why, you know, this is why this bad thing happened in, in my life personally. You well, know, this is right. why it's, this is why the country seems so different than it did when I was a kid. This is why American values seem to be, you know, this is, you know, seem traditional values, which is its own kind of dog whistle. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's so it's so difficult sometimes to grasp what's so you read that passage about the you know, yep. about teenage. So teenage suicide, as it is again now, distressingly, during the 80s, the teenage suicide rate was climbing, climbing, climbing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just multiplying at an almost exponential rate. And um, there's two ways to approach that. You can either you can either really try to understand what's going on with, in this case, young people and depression and mm-hmm. suicide, which involves having 
first of all, there are no easy answers to that. You know, there's no one size fits all solution. And it also requires having a lot of awkward conversations Mm -hmm. with young people and about young people about, um, you know, about drugs, about sex, about Mm -hmm. identity, about, you know, about, uh, you know, depression and mental health and how we treat that and how we define it. And for a lot of people, a lot of adults, for a lot of reasons, some of them are just logistical, some of them are religious. They don't want to, you know, it's too, it becomes too hard or difficult to deal with that. And so it's a lot easier on some level to go like, well, the devil did it. That's why, because then you can check the box and it's gone. Being able to blame something on like a shadowy outsider, right, is I kind of feel like comforting in a way for people. Absolutely. Um, All right. We have one more confession here. This one is from Vicki Sinkoff, St. John's, Florida. If You Tell by Greg Olson. Here's the synopsis. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. After more than a decade when sisters Nikki, Sammy, and Tori Notek hear the word mom, a clause like an eagle's talons triggering memories that have been secret since childhood. For years behind the closed doors of their farmhouse in Raymond, Washington, their sadistic mother, Shelly, subjected her girls to unimaginable abuse. Through it all, Nikki, Sammy, and Tori developed a defiant bond that made them uh, far less vulnerable than Shelly imagined. Even as others were drawn into their mother's dark and perverse web, the sisters found the strength and courage to escape an escalating nightmare that culminated in multiple murders. Harrowing and heartbreaking, If You Tell is a survivor story of absolute evil and the freedom and justice that Nikki, Sammy, and Tori risked their lives to fight for. Sisters forever, victims no more, they found a light in the darkness that made them the resilient women they are today, loving, loved, and moving on. That was a damned well-written confession. <laughs> so are you familiar with that one, sir? Uh, yeah, I read it. It's extremely disturbing. Um, okay. I don't feel like that's a book for kids to read, but, you know. Right, right. <laughs> who, and this is non- who am I to talk? <laughs> nonfiction, it's, it's, sounds like? It's, it's nonfiction. Yeah. Oh, it is? Yeah. Oh. Well, I mean, I thought it was when I read it. It's, yeah, actually, it does kind of sound like it is. I mean, it's like, imagine, like, the scariest mom you can imagine, you know? Right. And, uh, uh, oh Mommy God. Dearest? No, way worse. Uh, I actually have never seen Mommy Dearest. I've always heard about it, though. I like it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Mommy Dearest is like just kind of a, it's it's so, like, cartoonish that it's, right, a, you right. know, but th- I feel like th- this 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 book is, is pretty brutal. Okay. Um, it sounds pretty grim. Yeah, it's extremely grim. Yeah. Um, mm. I I I could I couldn't uh, remember the ending. Uh, uh, the girls got away. Not everybody did. Mm. Um, yeah, it's. I, I recommend it if you're into disturbing books, right. disturbing nonfiction books about like stuff that could be happening just next door. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that stuff is scary. Yeah. You know, just kind of. Uh, it's, it's it's disturbing too when you ha- when you have like a friend for years and you had no idea that like you know something horrible was happening mm-hmm. behind yeah. the scenes in their house. Yeah, you know? for sure kind of that feeling all right um well is there anything else we want to touch on as far as jay's journal and go ask alice like i said we, we appreciated your uh song title oh, sub chapters yeah, yeah. notice that oh, yeah so i was I, I i totally uh got off the point i was gonna comment on that the, yeah i'm glad you pointed out the teenage uh frankenstein thing so all of the uh i don't really mention this in the book it's sort of there is not really even an easter egg but it's there if people want you know if people notice it great sure. if not that's fine too but it's all of the chapter titles and section titles they're all they're all named after songs i, I think with the exception of i think all but two are song titles um and partially that's because i you know music is just sort of 
you know, an integral part of my life and has been, you know, for as long as I can remember, it's just kind of my constant companion. And also, and honestly, having lived through the satanic panic where, you know, one of the strange sort of outcroppings of that was, uh, you know, the, the idea that music contained, you mm -hmm. know, I mean, the funny thing is, I mean, I was busy listening to Black Sabbath, where all of the messages about the devil are right there in straightforward, right. easy to understand <laughs> right, <yeah>. English. <laughs> my right? name it's is like, Lucifer. You know, Please take my yeah. hand. Right, right. Yeah. Good. What could they be saying? Okay, you have earned <laughs> so many points just by making that reference right now. It's, it's, yeah. It actually says the exact same thing backwards. <laughs> That's the yeah. crazy part. My name is Still Lucifer. I think if you play it backwards, if you played NIB backwards, I think it just says like, hey, this is bad for the needle of your turntable. I don't know why you're doing this. <laughs> You're gonna scuff this record, kid. A record player is not a toy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's like I, you know, I. Rem but it was the idea that, and this is one of the sort of things I return to again and again in. I, and I guess I should give, if you don't mind, I should guess I should give just the, the capsule description of of the book is that, you know, so 1971, um, this book Go Ask Alice comes out, and it's ostensibly the posthumous diary of a teenage. Uh, addict this girl gets you know lured into drug use and runs away from home and relapses and gets clean or relapses and gets clean and then she finally dies at 17 and, and she leaves behind these diaries which are then uh, ostensibly you know allegedly edited into this uh into this non-fiction book and it comes out in 1971 and it it really uh you know it sells like five million copies and it kind of creates the modern young adult genre and it helps to cement a lot of adult ideas about the war on drugs and really changes the world. And then eight years later, this uh, other book does something similar, Jay's Journal. And Jay's Journal is sort of a sibling book to go ask Alice. It's again, a, a supposed teenage diary. Uh, and it's this one is about a, a teenage boy who gets lured into witchcraft into black magic and he dies at 16 and same thing, leaves behind his diary, which is then published as this ostensibly true book in 1979 and that helped to fuel you know this the satanic panic and what and, and so i even having read go ask alice you know in high school several times and knowing about jay's journal and having lived through the satanic panic what i did not know for the longest time and is that both of these books go ask alice and jay's journal came from the same place they both came from this giant house with blood red walls on the outskirts of Provo, Utah. <laughs> and it's just, the story is just, it's, it's so much, as I said at the outset, it's just so much bigger and crazier mm -hmm. than mm -hmm. I had any idea. And every time I thought the story was like, well, this can't get any weirder or more far flung. And I was proven wrong every time because the story is just, it is just mind boggling. And um, it really is, you know, it goes from, Hollywood literally into the Oval Office to the behavioral science unit at Quantico, the FBI, mm -hmm. um, you know, all the way across the country and into, you know, into what a lot of us lived through and what a lot of people have read about since then, which is not just the war on drugs, but again, the, the satanic panic. And mm -hmm. it really is, um, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, that all of these things could be explained by, aha, he was playing Dungeons and Dragons or oh, aha. He was listening to Ozzy Osbourne or mm -hmm. whatever. And it really, you know, and it's it's a thing that clearly like still affects the culture in a lot of ways. And it, uh, it anyway, it really is. Um, I, I mean, I think, uh, anyway, it's just a fascinating story for anybody that lived through that or has, has read about it or for anybody who is interested in how 
unbelievable stories get published as nonfiction mm-hmm. or yeah. that moment when something real becomes a myth, you know, that moment when something that really happened slowly right. becomes a legend. Right, if right. you're into any of that, I mean, Unmask Alice is really, you know, it goes into that, you know, pretty, pretty deeply. Absolutely. Sue and I have enjoyed it immensely. It's definitely something I'm going to read uh, several times in the future, I'm sure. Um, now, Rick, you said your next book's definitely not going to be the exorcist uh, uh, thing. What, can you tell us what you're working on or is that classified? Uh, <laughs> a few things percolating it at the moment uh i'm you know <laughs> it's funny like all people who claim that they are not superstitious i am absolutely right yeah. <laughs> deeply superstitious it's like everybody i know who's not superstitious like they knock wood which i do as well so uh i am i'm always afraid of jinxing things uh but uh yeah there's some things some things in the in the hoppers that people say something is in the hopper what does that mean <laughs> what is a hopper i think it's the it's like the uh kind of tub that's at the beginning of the mill right so you like put the stuff that oh, needs to be ground so up for in the there and then they like for beer yeah, yeah. yeah. For okay beer. Like, I've, been, I've been learning all those terms because i just started working right. at a brewery yeah. mm-hmm. but i haven't heard that one i have yet. no choice but to believe you because i have no better explanation <laughs> i be i thought it. it was like bingo balls or something like at the you know before the at, you know like when i like bingo when I, I grew up catholic and so it's like they would always i'd have to, have to go like work the snack bar as, you <laughs> yeah. know with the adult uh, oh, okay. 19. Yeah. Okay. Oh, All the, uh, both of those, both of those guesses are accurate. I was leaning more towards the beer description, but yeah. the, the bingo ball hopping around that I could see that too. Yeah. yeah. I, well, all right. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I mean, is, is there any reason to believe that? Or he just kind of, uh, I mean, is that called a hopper? <laughs> I don't know. Look, I know that my thing is right. So, right. uh, I, I would, I would, I would, <laughs> I would bet my I, but, life. But I'm wondering why why Rick uh, went right to bingo balls with that. Like, is is it called hopping or like they are I, hopping? I, I just it just I it's uh, this is this is have this is my mechanism for interviewing. <laughs> it's a liminal yes. container for stuff. Mm-hmm. Hey, okay. there you go. See, right. that's this, this is how I interviewed Terry Pratchett. I was just able to sort of bluff. <laughs> if you just say something confidently yeah. and just sort of sure, you know sure. like. Especially if you're holding a clipboard and you go, oh, absolutely. Uh, actually, that uh, that's really a reference to bingo balls. I thought everybody knew that. Yeah. People, 90% of people will just take you at your word. Yeah, always go with bingo balls when in doubt. Yeah. It's just, uh, that's a good interview. You're going to get. Trip. <laughs> All right, guys. But Sue has the ring of authority when she says that. I, I feel like you know what you're talking about. This has definitely been her most confident subject thus far. It's <laughs> <is> the hopper. <laughs> All right, guys, this has been an amazing episode. Once again, the uh, book is called Unmask Alice by Rick Emerson. Pick it up uh, or listen to the audio version. It's uh, we, We've both just enjoyed it so much. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, Rick. Is there anything else you'd like to plug before you go? Do you want to tell us where we can find you again? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm in uh, at Rick Emerson on Instagram and Twitter and rickemerson.com. And, and really, truly, I, thank you so much for... Uh, and it means a lot that 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 you read the book and that you liked it. That means, I mean, it's of course, uh, of course. Both just, Sue and I were like, this guy wrote this book for us. Yeah. <laughs> my my sisters also, I'm sure, are going to want to read it. They're the ones who introduced me to Go Ask Alice. It was one of those books floating around, you know, the the household for a while that had a spooky cover and you oh know. yeah, yeah. I and as I said, uh, to sort of bring it full circle, as I said at the top, it's. You know, I, I read Go Ask Alice when I was, uh, I think, a freshman in high school. And um, and I always just sort of assumed that somebody else had already written this book. I thought, right. well, somebody mm-hmm. must have done mm-hmm. it. I can't be the only one. And, uh, you know, it turns out that nobody had it. And um, 
I, you know, I, I suspected that, you know, that there were other people like me that always kind of wondered about the true story of Go Ask Alice. And so it, it really does, uh, you know, it means it just means the world that you know that that people are connecting with the book and enjoying it. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. Of course, thank, thank you, you, Rick. Rick. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much for co-hosting, Sue. Oh yeah. Thanks for producing, Jimmy. As always. And we will see everyone next time on the Confessional. 